Hello, and thank you for listening to this social action briefing. I am Craig Milch. I'm joined by Professor Jessica Mitchell. Hello, Jess. Hey, Craig. And Martina Stevenson. Hi, Tina. Hello. So we are back from semi-hiatus. Martina was not hiatusing. She was doing interviews that hopefully everybody listened to. Um, but we're back to our normal format this week. And uh, any regular or sometimes listener of the podcast would probably know the first thing that we're going to talk about, which are the midterm elections. And we have the benefit of, you know, let's see. So two Wednesday. So we're, we're recording this Wednesday night, November uh, 6th, oh, November 30th. So two weeks ago would have been the 16th. Last week was the 23rd, it was fresh. You know, there were still some, you know, uh, you know, there were still opinions to be made and, re- and uh, later corrected. So the dust is pretty much settled at this point for the most part. And we can talk about it. Of course, um, it went a lot better for Democrats than expected based on, you know, historical trends of uh, the president's party losing in the midterms after they were elected, inflation being high, uh, you know, was like fundamentals, you know, being against uh, the Democrats, it did a lot better. Um, there was one, so uh, Eric Levitz at uh, New York Magazine kind of outlined, you know, you know the successes of the Democrats uh, compared to expectations, but noted one concerning, possibly concerning trend or something to keep an eye on, which is uh, governors like uh, Brian Kemp in Georgia and Mike DeWine in Ohio uh, outperformed uh, other Republicans in their, uh, in their state, you know, that ran statewide elections like Senate candidates. And, um, you know, they, they won their races and they're seen, you know, as moderates um, solely for, you know, saying that Joe Biden won the 2020 election. They still have, uh, you know, reactionary policies. Like in 2019, uh, Brian Kemp enacted one of the nation's most draconian abortion bans, restricting legal abortion to the period before fetus has a detectable heartbeat which generally occurs within six weeks of pregnancy. Uh, he refused to accept uh, federal funds to expand Medicaid, despite the fact that doing so would help keep many financially embattled rural hospitals, which serve the GOP's base, afloat. And on uh, many highly salient issues, uh, he's flouted both public opinion and sympathetic interest groups in the state in the favor of upholding conservative orthodoxy. Um, Mike DeWine in Ohio won re-election by more than 25 points. In 2020, Biden lost the state by just eight points, while uh, the Democratic Senate candidate Tim Ryan lost against J.D. Vance by just 6.6 points. So so DeWine now performed J.D. Vance by a lot, even though he signed into a law, an abortion ban that's more aggressive than Georgia's, which prohibits the termination of a pregnancy after six weeks, even in cases of rape and incest. Uh, whereas Georgia's law provides exceptions in those cases, provided that the victims filed a police report, uh, which isn't all that much better. Uh, DeWine also opposes same-sex marriage 
and backs tax cuts for the rich. They, uh, you know, they both conflicted publicly with Trump uh, because they wouldn't go along with the big lie. Um, it seems possible in uh, Levitt's estimation, I think I agree, that uh, Kemp and DeWine owed some of their success to the aura of moderation they secured merely by being objects of Trump's ire and opponents of coups. Um, and you know, he points out the, the danger that extreme candidates will seem moderate just because they've opposed Trump. Um, although you know, there are other explanations for their performance, their incumbent governors, their incumbent governors with money from the American Rescue Plan that allowed for tax, things like tax cuts without cutting spending. And Kemp and DeWine both increased public school funding. So just something to look out for. I'm worried about it, you know, in the future going forward, you know, just because somebody's not Trump doesn't mean that they're, you know, not a dangerous fascist. Basically. I mean, I am also concerned about that and I'm not happy that either of these individuals won. Obviously, I would have been much happier if CeCe Abrams had won her race, had Raphael Warnock not had to go to another runoff election. Um, however, I am happy that largely overall, the biggest loser in this election was really Trump. Um, you know, you'd expect in a midterm following a presidential election for the president, incumbent president's party to lose. And it seems that Democrats well outperformed Trump backed candidates, especially based on historical precedent of what should happen in this sort of midterm election. Yeah, every election denying Secretary of State candidate lost uh, in uh, like swing swing states. Mm -hmm. There's there's one in like I don't know Indiana or something like some red state that they're gonna win anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah, I mean, don't have to worry about stealing elections from Democrats because Democrats weren't winning them anyway. No, and it's you know it's still frightening that like there are obviously people with this message that are going to win primarily in red states anyway. But overall, there have been a lot of you know decent takeaways from this. I mean, Raphael Warnock didn't lose; he came out on top. Not enough with Georgia's racist voting laws for him to just win the election outright. Um, but I have faith that Democrats are going to actually show up in this election. I may just be talking myself into it because I am obviously scared that Democrats kept control of the Senate even without that seat and Democrats don't really need an excuse to not show up. So that could potentially depress her now, but I'm hoping that people understand the difference between 50 and 51 in the U.S. Senate and the difference that that will hold in committee assignments and just the fact that Democrats will hold an outright majority without the vice president. Um, but it just, you know, it, it really did go better. You know, the now incoming governor of the state of Arizona is a Democrat who's a social worker. Um, the incoming mayor of Los Angeles is also a former congresswoman slash social worker. There are some things about her I would prefer she didn't do, like, you know, take pictures with members of Scientology, but we can't. <laughs> All perfect. Um, you know, that's obviously a huge problem in my mind because I don't believe in any cults, whether it's Trump or Scientology. But, you know, on a whole, it seems that most of the 
prior to election day reporting, it was really just your typical like doomsday reporting. And you know what, if that's what motivates Democrats to go vote, then I hope that reporters continue to do that every election. Yeah, the takes were so bad. They were talking about like, I saw one like that was sort of brought up in retrospect on Twitter today that was like, oh, the the suburban moms are voting, are going to vote against the COVID shutdowns of schools in 2020 because, oh. you know, the effects of Dobbs is outweighed by that. Like, what are you talking about? Well, you know, it's funny, actually, after Election Day, I saw this thing from this, you know, crazy person on Instagram who I don't follow, but I stalk. It wasn't Candace Owens. It's this other person. And apparently they were very pissed off that none of the quote unquote lockdown governors lost. And I died a little bit inside because I find their political takes always particularly ridiculous. Um, But yeah, I mean, if this, you know, it's funny because if this had happened 10 years ago, which it sort of did 12 years ago, the the doomsday rhetoric after Obama won in 2008 with the 2010 midterm elections that, you know, the Tea Party was going to take over and Democrats were going to lose, like absolutely happened. Democrats got slaughtered in 2010. And I find it fascinating because a lot of the news reporting around that was pretty similar. However, this was like a pre-hyped up social media time where Twitter barely existed. Facebook, young people actually used it. Um, Instagram wasn't a thing yet. You know, it was a very different time period and Democrats did get slaughtered. But I feel that this reporting could potentially be a motivating factor for Gen Zers where with the millennials, it kept them at home. So, you know, maybe rethinking the the way that we view that reporting, if it's going to motivate, you know, Gen Zers to get out and vote, I'm all for it. You do what you got to do to get Democrats to vote. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I haven't seen any analysis that says like the proving the conventional wisdom wrong was a big motivator but you know maybe no no no. i'm not saying proving the conventional wisdom wrong i'm saying like the the doomsday rhetoric is what used to keep millennials home you know the everything's terrible you know crime is up democrats are gonna lose like that is a lot of what used to keep millennials home and if that doomsday rhetoric is actually what's going to get gen zers to go out and vote then like more parachute you cnn fox like keep at it I feel like it's more, you know, where they're at, they are getting messages of like, you you can do something. You know, this is how you vote, stuff like that, you know? I, you know, it, I mean, whatever combination. Organize, like organizing, you know, like uh, the org, like, and they're, they're, you know, the boomers are watching that other stuff and they're, they're on TikTok learning, you know, the facts that uh, are salient to them and, and uh, getting, getting organized to vote. Yeah. But there definitely was a, I think youth turnout was almost at or surpassed 2018 levels. Yeah. I mean, the, even the early voting numbers from Georgia for the runoff are looking pretty positive already beating out the 2018 and 2020 numbers and yeah it's like seven percent or something you know in that in that range of people that didn't vote in the general voted in the runoff it's fabulous yeah whatever gets people to go vote i don't like we just whatever it should be mandatory um 
But yeah, I mean, interesting seeing what's happening across the country with all of the like reasonably successful elections and all the places where they said, you know, Democrats were going to lose the Arizona and Nevada, you know, Senate races while close, like we're not, you know, looked upon very favorably the Pennsylvania Senate race, like so many places. And then you look at New York state and it's, you know, it's scary. Like the statewide elections went the way that they should have gone. Um, given the vast voter registration advantage that Democrats have in the state. Um, but everything else, all the districted races did not really go the way that they necessarily should have, um, which is partially our own fault for our redistricting mayhem that happened. Um, but we're down to two Democratic senators on Long Island um, and a bunch of state assembly people that have held their seats for a really long time lost throughout the state. I mean, we Democrats have had a super majority in the assembly for so long and by such drastic numbers that losing a couple of seats isn't really going to make or break anything. And the Republicans that won them are going to learn very quickly that they have absolutely no power in the New York state assembly. Um, but Republicans broke the super majority that Democrats had in the state Senate. Um, and picked up a bunch of seats on Long Island. Well, the supermajority is definitely more important when Cuomo is the governor. I mean, it yes. remains to be seen if Coco will, you know, be a, you know, be, will veto stuff that's passed. But def- if she does, it'll be less than Cuomo. Yeah. But those, I mean, those are maps. Those are, you know, those are the maps that, you know, I think your words were make more sense than the ones that advantage Democrats more. So it's sort of the, you know, they make sense when you look at them on a piece of paper. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the maps that were drawn by the Democrats in the beginning of the year were horrific. Yeah. Uh, you know, but the problem is, is that given that they had a supermajority, they could have done a much better job of drawing maps that were better for Democrats and made more logical sense instead of having a district that starts in Smithtown on Long Island, goes through Suffolk, Queens, the Bronx, and into Westchester, you know, they could have done a better job of making sure that there were some, you know, like good Democratic districts that didn't span five different counties. And instead- So when, yeah, when the, when the maximally- uh, you know, partisan maps were, you know, thrown out by the judge or whatever. Why wasn't the version that it went to a version that was like made more set, like made more sense, but also, you know, favored Democrats more than they ended up favoring them? So back in 2014, we voted in New York State to come up with a nonpartisan redistricting committee. Um, and to be honest with you, I'm not like a big believer in them because the way that it was written. Like some people were going to be appointed by the Senate, some were going to be appointed by the Assembly, some were going to be appointed by the governor. Like those are all partisan human beings. This isn't, it wasn't going to be a real nonpartisan redistricting committee. Um, but Cuomo and in his infinite wisdom, you know, dragged his feet on actually implementing it. And that turned into an entire disaster. The new maps got drawn. And when the judge threw them out, it's not like it goes back, it didn't go back to the assembly in the Senate or to like the partisan branch of government, it went to a special master who drew them. And this person's entire role was to draw the 
best districts without favoring any particular political party. So they took, and they, you know, from a geographic standpoint, they did a good job from a political and geographic standpoint of making sure that the districts didn't, um, didn't look ridiculous, you know, didn't, you know, it, it just, they were better, you know, districts, but had Democrats actually done it, had the, you know, government actually done it, they would have been able to draw semi-decent districts that just favor Democrats a little bit more. It didn't help, you know, it, it didn't help also given like everything that's gone on in the state that Democrats passed bail reform and then refused to actually defend it and instead just accept the attacks by Republicans. Yeah, well, so, and that kind of dovetails with uh, sort of, I don't know, sort of what the reason that sort of emerged uh, in sort of the progressive sphere, I guess, as to why the, the New York elections all were, you know, shifted towards the Republicans in terms of the margins and whatnot, um, which is that the, the state party uh, apparatus has been more uh, concerned with fighting its left flank than Republicans. Yeah, well, if you see, a good example. Yeah, I mean, if you see what like the state party and Jay Jacobs put out as statements afterwards, like they're just trashing progressives, not realizing that like they continue to employ the same campaign tactics over and over again, and it's literally getting them nowhere. Um, and nominating like the same group of people over and over again, you know, and, and it's getting them nowhere. And Jay Jacobs himself. Jay Jacobs didn't run for anything. Oh, who was it? Oh no, Patrick Maloney. Sean Sean Patrick Maloney. Yes, he lost. He lost. What's his he has some sort of party role, right? He yeah, he was like the deputy, some shit or another for the congressional democrats. And then another, I mean, another example of the ineptness of the party was, you know, we talked about it at the time where those three, there were ballot initiatives for the constitutional amendments for voting rights. That, that was last year. Yeah. I mean, it was still, the, but it was the party that did it, you know, the same, the same party, just I'm saying it's sort of emblematic of how they've been in that they put no money behind passing them while Republicans spent like $3 million and then they all lost. Yeah. Well, I mean, and in that, it, like the craziest part about that was that was like a multi-year process. But the other thing is too, is that I don't necessarily think that the state Democratic Party apparatus wanted that to pass because Democrats still live under the philosophy that the less people that vote, the better for their own incumbents, especially when it yeah. comes primaries and stuff like that they're not trying to expand the voter base like they're not even really trying to expand into their own party i'm a super prime dem i have voted in ever i've been a registered democrat since i'm 18 years old i've voted in the the you know general elections and the primary elections everything when cuomo got primaried in 2014 and 2018 i never got one single piece of mail from him until after the primary election that he won because he didn't want me to remember to show up and vote because he knew that it was really likely that i was going to vote against him which i did both times <laughs> yeah what what were the there were three ballot initiatives 
I'm sure you remember what they were, right? So there were, no, there were like five ballot initiatives last oh, year, fine. one related to the New York City Civil Court, one related to the environment. This year was housing, we, a right to housing. Last year was the environment. One allowed, was going to allow for same day voter registration, which is currently prohibited under our state constitution because our state constitution was written in a time where there was no electronics. It was written in 1938. Um, one would have allowed for, um, it was same day voter registration and no excuse absentee voting. Bear in mind that in you know, the 1930s, the Democratic Party slash the mob slash unions had real control over what was going on in elections. And this was like kind of a time period in which, especially if you were a union member, like you showed up on election day with your union card so that it could get stamped. So they knew you voted and people would literally watch you vote. Um, to make sure that you voted for like the union endorsed candidates. So, the, you know, no excuse absentee voting. They don't want people voting at home because it took away control over who you were voting for. Um, and there was a fifth one. And I hear it was gerrymandering related. So there are three voting rights. ones, yes. And then that environmental one passed. Did the court one pass? Yeah, it was some like restructuring because you have to remember that as a political entity, New York City is sort of carved out in our state constitution as like a political entity in and of itself. So there are a lot of what New York City does and has to do is dictated by the state constitution. So this kind of like rejiggered the civil court system in New York City. Yeah, so those were not vote, you know, directly voting rights related, but the others that were, they allowed them to just fail. Because but the Democratic establishment is also not interested in more people voting. I mean, look what happens when yeah. they vote. There's a Gen Z elected to Congress from Florida now. Like, you know, there's just so much that is unknown and there is no party loyalty from younger people. I mean, I you know, I don't have a lot of party loyalty either. I live in New York state. There's two party options. I want to be able to vote in primaries. So I'm a registered Democrat. Like I'm not going to work for Republicans, obviously, but my loyalty isn't to the party. My loyalty is to individual people. So it's like crazy. One party just happens to be absolutely terrible every time for individual people. Yeah. No, yeah, I mean, there's no way like I would ever vote for a Republican, but like my loyalty is not to the Democratic Party. And that's the issue, you know, with like the changing generations and also the issue with the lack of change in leadership. You know, Congress has, you know, changed. Like there's obviously going to be a change in leadership. Nancy Pelosi stepped down. Democrats elected, you know, leadership that is at this point, like all people of color, LGBTQ folks, like women. 93 years younger than their predecessors. Yeah. Like, so, yeah. So like that is, is good and it's promising. And I'm hopeful that that works out well, you know, for the country in general. Um, Unfortunately, Democrats are not going to have control of the House of Representatives come January. And that is the direct fault of New York State and our ridiculous redistricting. Had we kept all the seats we already had and had been able to pick up some more like we expected to be able to, Democrats would have controlled the House, but we had to 
get obnoxious in our own selves. Um, but that is beneficial, but New York state hasn't done that. You know, our leadership is still primarily old, you know, white men and, you know, obviously it's great. The Lieutenant governor hasn't been one, but the Lieutenant governor's entire responsibility in New York state is the same as the vice president of the United States. They have to have a fucking heartbeat. Like, you don't do anything unless the governor resigns or dies, as you know, Kathy Hochul is well aware of, given that she was the lieutenant governor. Yeah. Exactly. Um yeah, good uh summation from uh Bolt's Mag and our uh our friend Daniel uh I remember ever pronounce his name correctly, but McCainian, I guess, who is Taniel on Twitter, um, noted that in 2010 and 2014, the GOP gained 600 and 600 and then 250 legislative seats respectively. And then in 2022, they only gained 22. Um, and this is despite uh, the, the fact that there is a drop in uh, majority minority districts. Um, so Reed Wilson in Pluribus News uh, reported on an analysis by Brian Amos, who's a, poly, a political scientist at Wichita State University uh, that examined 6,372 state legislative districts under map lines that were in effect for the 2020 elections and 6,467 districts drawn during the subsequent redistricting process across 49 states, not including Montana, uh, which new uh, state legislative district lines haven't been drawn yet. Um, there are 368 districts around the country where Black Americans make up a majority of the population, which is down from uh, 390 Black majority districts before the new boundaries were drawn even though in, um, in there were 41.1 million Black Americans in the U.S., up from 38.9 million in the, the 2020 census versus the 2010 census. Um, the number of districts where Hispanics make up the majority of the population has risen from uh, 249 to 258. Uh, but the number of districts where Hispanics make up between 30 and 50% of the population, um, which would give a good shot at electing uh, one of their own in uh, to state office, um, one of their own meaning other, you know, another Hispanic elected official, um, that declined by 23 seats, despite the fact that uh, the U.S. population now has 62 million Hispanic residents and the, in the previous census had just over 50 million. Um, the number of non-Hispanic white Americans fell uh, from 20, 223 million in 2010 to 204 million in 2020. Um, this was the first redistricting process since the US Supreme Court struck down sections of the Voting Rights Act uh, in the Shelby case, which you know weakened provisions that were meant to protect minorities during the remapping process. Um, this is a quote from Brian Amos. It is the first full redistricting, re full first full redistricting without Section Five of the Voting Rights Act. So there are no protections on retrogression, where states that were under Section Five coverage were expected to keep the same number of majority minority districts barring a clear shift of demographics. Um, in Texas, 
uh, Republicans uh, approved and Governor Abbott signed maps that create 109 majority minority districts, which are five fewer than under the previous map, even though uh, the Census Bureau figures show that Texas added 2 million Latino or Hispanic residents in the last decade, more than a half million black residents, 613,000 Asian American residents, and just 187,000 non-Hispanic white residents. With, uh, so this is a quote from Joaquin Gonzalez, general counsel at the Mexican-American Legislative Caucus in Texas. Quote, with 95% of the population growth coming from communities of color and about 50% of it from Latinos alone, it's hard to imagine how you could draw these districts to actually reduce the number of majority minority or majority Latino districts without doing it on purpose. Um, there are similar results in Florida and Mississippi. Uh, the number of majority minority districts rose in New York, Virginia, and Michigan, where they were drawn by special masters or independent commissions. Um, they also rose in Massachusetts and Maryland, where maps were drawn by Democrats. Um, California, Delaware, and Illinois lost one district each, even though the maps were drawn by Democrats. Um, and then Republican-drawn maps in North Dakota and Utah each gained two majority-minority districts. Um, so again, more evidence that proves that John Roberts was uh, wrong and full of shit when uh, he, uh, I guess he wrote the opinion in Shelby because I always see it framed as, you know, him, him doing this and him saying that we didn't need the Voting Rights Act anymore because you know, the, the analogy of, uh, you know, I'm, it, yeah, it's raining, out, it's raining outside, but I'm under an umbrella, so I'm dry, so I don't need an umbrella anymore. Yeah, and um, I mean, he knew he was full of shit when it happened. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, another example of somebody who uh, is, has been seen as moderate when uh, he's really not been over his entire legal career. Um, so <laughs> I mean, of, oh, like yeah, once yeah. in a while makes a decision and votes on the side that like you wouldn't expect him to, but it's, you know. It's usually just like, oh, let's not go too far. You know, let's, we'll get too much heat politically for going too far. So let's like go with the liberals. Guessing. That's what it is, it's keep people guessing. He's a... Uh, messy bitch that loves drama um but yeah speaking of uh, some people that are not uh moderate and probably uh no even fox news maybe not would not call them that um you know there's the scandal of uh trump having uh kanye west uh over to mar-a-lago along with uh nick fuentes and uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, um, obviously Kanye has just gone full white supremacist and anti-Semite in uh, recent months or what have you. Apparently he went over to Mar-a-Lago to try to convince Trump to run as his vice president. And um, what uh, the Mar-a-Lago and Trump folks are trying to say is that he brought along Nick Fuentes uh, but they didn't know who he was. But Nick Fuentes is like a real Nazi. Like uh, says Jews should be thrown out of the country. Uses the N word. Says the most vile shit possible. 
all you have to do is a little bit of Googling to see clips and he's just vile. Isn't that um, Trump's excuse every time? Is like just every um, time you know who the person was. It's like, do you not have a cell phone that has Google on it, dude? Like, yeah. isn't that difficult <laughs> to figure out? It was also Marjorie Taylor Greene's excuse when she like spoke at his event or, or something. She is batshit fucking crazy, that lady. I mean, I don't understand how she gets out of bed in the morning and like showers and gets herself dressed because she is so obsessed with ending abortion and shoving her head so far up Trump's ass that she can't see the light of day. I really have no idea. And yet even she won't, uh, you know, proudly embrace Fuentes in rhetoric, although I think she took a photo either next to him or with her arm around him or something. Um, She's like on the list of people I stalk on Instagram, but refuse to hit the follow button because that's just like too much commitment to me for me. <laughs> her pictures on here are of her hog hunting with an, I think it's an AR-15 that she, yes, it's an AR-15. That's her favorite gun for hunting and home defense. Um, and she has pictures of herself here with Trump all the time with her stupid thumbs up and um, Kyle Rittenhouse because, you know, he was just defending himself. Yeah. It's, I mean, to describe what's actually going on, you know, with respect to like the rise of fascism makes you sound like, you know, an alarmist, but it's alarming. <laughs> um, no, no, it's like seriously alarming. I mean, I just don't understand you saying you didn't know who he was is just an excuse. Also, Kanye West, with all the anti Semitic things that he said recently, and the fact that he showed up to some fashion show with a White Lives Matter shirt on, you should be embarrassed to be seen with him. Period. Yeah. Yeah, Candace Owens, you hear that? I mean, Candace Owens should be embarrassed about herself and really needs to go get herself some fucking therapy to deal with whatever deep-seated issues that lady has. Because when she got on her Instagram stories and goes, I think that some of you forgot that I'm a Black woman. I was like, yes, every goddamn one of us forgot because you open your mouth and it makes it hard for us to see. I saw somewhere that like she used to be, you know, on the left and got made fun of and then decided to go right wing. Oh, yeah. There's pictures of her with the NAACP because some kid in her high school was sending her racist letters. So she did what any reasonable human being would do and made a complaint about it. And the NAACP showed up at her school for her and had a press conference where she was standing with them to speak out about the racist rhetoric that was going on in her Connecticut high school. And then all of a sudden she realized she could make some money being a right-wing crazy. And that's what she decided to do. Yeah. Yeah. They all need a planet by themselves (laughs) because they're crazy. She she was trying to get Kanye to buy... Uh, like a social media platform from her husband. Yep, because it's failing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she's nuts. They're all they, like just uh, insane. Like when I saw that Instagram story, I died a little bit inside because she has two children at home and I just, that doesn't seem safe to me. Yeah, yeah. thinking about the, these some of these figures that have children. Yeah. Well, like Marjorie Taylor Greene's kids are older. So like, you know, I am convinced that they can like 
feed themselves and run if necessary, but Candace Owens and Owens kids are like small. Oh yeah. Um, and we've and we've seen the drama with Kellyanne Conway's kid, like was on TikTok and stuff <laughs> of the abuse that she received. Um, but uh, yeah, so there was a piece in the Washington Post where Greg Sargent spoke with uh, Kathleen Ballou, who's a, a historian at uh, Northwestern um, and an international authority on the white power movement, which really helped sort of, you know, make clear what the issue is. Because, you know, you know, if you're talking among like-minded like people, it's obvious why things are terrible. But, you know, if you're trying to spread the message of, you know, uh, to get people that don't realize it, you know, why things are, are, are dangerous, um, it's good to, you know, drill down on them. Um, so, you know, this is a, a quote from Ballou that um, by having uh, Nick Fuentes over to Mar-a-Lago, um, actually, I think this, I don't know if this is, uh, this is a quote from the article. Um, quote, Trump handed white supremacists and white power activists a major propaganda coup. It will be read by them as another sign that they are successfully infiltrating the far right flank, flank of mainstream GOP politics. Uh, so, so will the silence for many Republican leaders uh, since Trump's dinner with Fuentes. That, yeah, that's, a, that's a quote uh, from Sargent. Um, and according to Ballou, the term white power movement is more fitting than white supremacist because, quote, white power is a concentrated but very violent subset within the broader web of white supremacy. White power is better thought about as a connected movement of groups and activists who are overtly racist and interested in using violence to create an all-white ethno-state society or even nation. Sometimes they think about an all-white planet. Um, and uh, the visit of Fuentes to Mar-a-Lago with the former president um, has been used as an example of infiltration and co-optation of mainstream politics and a sign that more is possible. Um, the January 6th and you know an attempted coup was important to the white power movement because it showed people uh, in power are not safe from white power movement from the white power movement and that they can violently reclaim the country from racial immigration if enough like-minded people rise up. Uh, white power presence in the January 6th mob was a powerful recruiting tool and the lack of condemnation by the Republican party shows their space for white power in the political uh, process. And uh, a lack of condemnation also shows that the white power movement is a force in the Republican party beyond Trump, um, important enough that electeds and candidates won't distance, distance themselves from it. She points out that there's a danger um, in the white power movement being purged from the January 6th narrative like it was with the Oklahoma City bombing and uh, that the lack of condemnation is, quote, a new and alarming escalation. So it all really aligns with, you know, I mean, this is even more overt. Um, although I guess it's, you know, it's a lack, it's a, it's a silence of, you know, a lack of combination. So it's sort of less overt. Um, you know, you have to notice that there's silence, but, you know, compared to uh, the, you know, it's, it's in line with the sort of, you know, the Kemp's and the DeWine seeming like moderates just because they oppose Trump. 
um, you know, just because these these people, you know, these politicians and electeds aren't Trump, you know, the fact that they're not speaking out against, you know, white power radicals, you know, it's arguably more dangerous than, you know, being allowed doofus like Trump. I mean, it's also concerning to me that in the same way, Democrats will not defend bail reform, that they also don't speak about this opportunity that they got, because this is so dangerous. And like speaking about it in a way that educates people, because the problem is is that they feel like they're going to alienate white voters, which, yeah, they're probably going to alienate some of them, but like they're not people that you needed in the first place. Like this whole narrative is so dangerous to everybody like it doesn't matter who you are this is fucking dangerous and people need to be saying that in whatever way that gets across yeah biden literally said you don't want to hear what i think right and he was like you know it was um like a turn of phrase or whatever like like all like to imply that he has very passionate feelings about it that would, you know, he'd go off the handle or something. Yeah. Well, but, I mean, like, we do for- need to. Yeah, but like, let's think about this for a second. Like, you want to go back to like the old definition of white in this country. Like, Biden isn't white; he's Catholic. That doesn't count. Like, if you're Catholic, if you're Jewish, if you're Italian, if you're Irish, like, this isn't like a, this isn't like a specific group of people this is not like this is not a guy who like hates immigrants from like south america or mexico this isn't a guy who hates black people like this is a guy who catholic himself is really just hating on everybody except old white men that he approves of and that really needs to start coming into the narrative like yes this is a white power thing like white power is the banner of you know this hatred but like it's like so frightening to me what they're going to do. And the fact that we don't talk about the racist history of this country is what lets people forget that more than likely you would not have been defined as white. Like, does anybody remember what the one drop rule was? Like, does anybody remember the signs that say no shirt, no shoes, no dogs, no Irish? Like this isn't this is such a larger problem of like the mentality of these people and it's fucking dangerous. And like the fact that this guy is a Holocaust denier too, like you, like this should be embarrassing for anybody who ever has a conversation with him. Like it, I would be embarrassed if I accidentally like spoke to him on the street and like gave him directions and found out who he was. I'm not kidding. Yeah. I mean, it's just vile. Whether you're, whether you would be like, whether he wants you know, whether he hates whatever your demographic is or not, you know, it's, he's just a vile person with vile beliefs and, and being allowed to meet with the former president who then just is like, oh, I didn't know. And then, but never, then who was, I think Kevin McCarthy said that Trump denounced him four times, denounced Prentice four times, but he didn't. He still hasn't because they, you know, post Trump or not, you know, the Republican Party relies on, you know, like white nationalists for yeah. votes and power. So yeah. like that is number one. And and after these midterms, you know, yeah, Trump was the biggest loser. And that was the only reason that's the only reason that, um, you know, that, that Republicans are really comfortable generally, you know, when they do speak out against Trump or, or try to say he's not, you know, he shouldn't run or, or somebody else should be the nominee it's because he lost not 
not from all the other, you know, tons of because they'll do it in the same way that the Democratic Party doesn't just constantly like that should be the campaign message like that should be the campaign message of every campaign until Trump is gone and Republicans are gone or at least more reasonable than they are right now like this should be the campaign message like you should be scared of white nationalism it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from like this should terrify you because these people are fucking crazy yeah, it's, I mean, across the board, it's extremism. Like, that's the way to tie all of the arguments against Republicans having power is extremism on, on every front, you know, whether it's, uh, whether it's this, whether it's abortion, whether it's even just the fact that they're just the ho-hum wanting to cut, you know, Social Security and Medicare. Like, it's all... Uh, it, it's all under that that theme, and I think that the midterms kind of showed that that is an effective message, um, you know, for for Democrats. And, and yeah, it would be great uh, to 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 have you know Democratic electeds uh, harping on it more and more, um, and not just like what not what uh, McAuliffe tried to do against. Youngkin in the Virginia governor race, which is like, oh, he's just like Trump. Um, but, you know, that just, he just went about it the wrong way. But, you know, just harping on on the extremism. Um, yeah. No, yeah. I mean, because it's, it's scary. I was in Boston two weeks ago with my family because we wanted to go see old historical things. And we walked past not realizing what it was. And then on our way back, realized that what we had walked past and looked at and went, that looks funny. Like, why is there steam coming up? Was actually a uh, like memorial to the Holocaust. And it was, it was like really upsetting actually to walk through this. So it was, it was a few, I think it was six, um, like things that were coming out of the ground. It was like glass and underneath it was the steam coming out of the, I think it was the subway system there, but I could be wrong. I don't know. That wasn't like purposely explained, but like, it was these like glass enclosures and engraved on every one of them. Each one of them represented a different concentration camp. And in the thing that was engraved on there, my mom and I realized when we were walking through it was the numbers, not the names that were assigned to people that were kept in these concentration camps. But at the end of it, when we get all the way to the end of it, they had this thing that I've heard before and didn't realize like how much it actually came out of the Holocaust, but I can't pronounce the guy's name. It's, I can't pronounce his last name, but he was a Lutheran pastor. And he's the one who said they came first for the communists. And I didn't speak up because I'm, I wasn't a communist. And then they came for the Jews and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. Then they came for the trade unionist and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for the Catholics and I didn't speak up because I was a Protestant. Then they came for me. And by that time, no one was left to speak up. So it doesn't matter if this isn't impacting you now, like they're going to come for you eventually. Like that is what these people are planning on doing. Like you have to think like more along the lines of like the handmaid's tale of like, it's just going to end up being like six old white, you know, probably Protestant dudes, like in a room somewhere with robes on. <laughs> but I took a picture of that and it's really interesting because it, I didn't realize 
I, like I've, I had heard that before, but I didn't really realize where it came from. And I also didn't realize that it came from a guy who literally at the beginning of the Holocaust gave anti-Semitic speeches. And oh, wow. Realized, the Lutheran guy? Yes, he was a Lutheran pastor. And at the beginning of the Holocaust, he had delivered several anti-Semitic sermons. Um, or I don't know if it was the beginning of the Holocaust or if it was like just in the beginning of the Nazi regime. And then he later basically realized what he did wrong and publicly opposed Hitler. Like we have these events in history to look back on to just know that it's wrong now. And we have access to this knowledge and information in a way that wasn't always possible in the past. Like we know what happened during the Holocaust. We know what happened, you know, with slavery in this country. We know all of this stuff that has been going on. We don't need to relive it. Yeah. And, you know, the lesson to derive is that, you know, if so, if any, you know, marginalized group is being oppressed you know even if you're not a part of that group you know the best way to avoid a future oppression is to root it out wherever it is even if it's not against you yeah and to understand that everyone has like the right to just have a life like I don't understand why this is so complicated I don't understand why people are so fearful and I want to say that like it doesn't matter to me when you come and say like oh this is what I was taught my whole life like this is what you know my mother was taught her whole life you know my dad was not the greatest influence on us and like I've definitely thought and said things that were stupid in the past and then you meet people and you learn like this is what happens my mom didn't she grew up in New England you know, in Connecticut, in Massachusetts, in Maine, she did not meet a Black person in real life until she was in middle school and had moved to New York. And all of the things that she had heard her whole life, like, come to her as she's finally meeting people who look different than her, who do different things than her. And her reaction to this wasn't, oh, yes, my family has always been right. Her reaction to it was, oh my God, everyone's just a person. And like, that is the appropriate reaction to have when you go out into the world and you realize that, you know, your family is wrong and that everyone are just people trying to live their best lives. And like, they don't all look the same, you know, and everyone's lives don't all look the same and that's okay. Yeah, I mean, there's a theory that, that that's why the, you know, best predictor and the biggest sort of schism in politics is, you know, for who's going to vote for a Democrat, who's going to vote for a Republican is college education. Because when you go to college, you meet, often meet people that are not like you and have that type of experience. Mostly. I mean, unless you're going to like a super insular religious institution, you're likely going to meet people you've never met in your life before. Like, I, you know, I grew up in New York, which is a decent place right outside New York City to meet people not like you. But I got to college and wow. <laughs> The people I met from all over the world, it was amazing and so much fun. And college was where again? What? Where was college again? I went to undergrad at Stony Brook. Oh, you did? Okay. But I lived there. Yeah. So it was, yeah, I've been at Stony Brook for a really long time. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, you know, I mean, it was, it, it was even better than I thought it was going to be because Stony Brook has historically 
for at least the last 20 years, had such a large population of international students um, that it was just- so living on campus was, yeah, the district experience of diversity. It really, yeah. And just like the people that I met from literally all over the world, from, you know, Africa to South Asia to Europe to like literally everywhere, it was amazing. Yeah, it's similar experience as well. Um, so from talking about who our former president uh, had to for dinner to what our current president is up to, um, there is a, I don't know, the, the news could have changed, you know, while since we started recording or, you know, till somebody, you know, some of our listeners listen, but, um, you know, as of outline preparation for this podcast, um, the most pro-union president, uh, Biden has called on Congress to impose a negotiated compromise, um, with the railroads and the railroad workers to avoid a strike, um, that, it was recently voted down by four out of, I think, 12 railroad unions representing most of the union members. Um, the rail workers have said that they are angry and frustrated that the deal lacked paid sick days or other substantial changes to an attendance policy that penalizes workers for taking time off while they're sick. Um, a rail, rail strike could you know, cause, threaten the nation's water supply, halt. Uh, passenger rail travel and tr trigger uh, major disruptions to the U.S. supply chain. So, you know, the economic damage, um, you know, if there's a strike, obviously, that's how strikes work. Um, here's Biden's quote. As a proud pro-labor president, I am reluctant to override the ratification procedures and the views of those who voted against the agreement. But in this case, where the economic impact of a shutdown would hurt millions of other working people and families, I believe Congress must use its powers to adopt this deal. Um, workers from the union that the unions that voted down the agreement cited the frustration over the lack of paid sick time and punitive attendance policies. Uh, Railroad workers do not receive paid sick days and are penalized for taking time off. Carriers have said that their attendance policies are necessary to keep rail line staff and that they allow workers to take time off when needed by using paid vacation time. It's obviously bullshit. You're not supposed to use vacation time when you're for sick days. Um, all 12 unions need to vote individually to ratify their contracts unless Congress imposes a contract. Um, if one union votes to strike, uh, this New York Times piece noted that they're likely, it's likely that all would follow. Um, the deal that was rejected by the four unions was negotiated with the help of the White House in September and touted by Biden at the time as, quote, a win for tens of thousands of rail workers. It offered all members a 24% raise by 2024, annual bonuses of $1,000 and a cap on healthcare premiums. It also granted conductors and engineers a single additional paid day off and allowed them to call out up to three times each year for routine doctor appointments without facing disciplinary uh, action. Many union members have stressed that the concessions from the railroads do not address uh, the deep, their deep CD concerns about a staffing model that several large carriers have rolled out in recent years. Union members say the model forces workers into grueling, unpredictable schedules. The Bureau of Labor Statistics has reported uh, more than 20% decline in railroad employment since 2018, um, which could have something to do with the staffing model. In June, a 51-year-old engineer who was a member of the 
largest union that voted down the agreement um, with a 15.9% vote died of a heart attack on a train after delaying a doctor's appointment, according to his family. So I'd, I'd say it's pretty disappointing uh, from Biden when they, the, the basically, you know, the sticking point for an agreement here is wanting seven days of, of paid sick leave. Like you should be on the side of workers uh, for that. I mean, it's not, it's beyond reasonable. Like, you know, it's certainly not, it's so far away from an unreasonable demand. I know the house passed uh, the, an agreement with seven days, six days, and it's up to the Senate to pass that. And it would be up to some Republicans to bypass the filibuster and allow it. Um, but, uh, you know, I understand wanting to avert, you know, major disruption and, you know, economic consequences and whatnot, but, you know, I think, uh, I under, yeah, I mean, I like railroads are really important, but so are the people who work on them. And like you said, you're not supposed to use your vacation time when you're sick, because obviously like your vacation time is meant for you to relax and like do the things that you enjoy. But I, someone was telling me the other day and I, I like, I'm blanking on who it was that they're, it might've been my sister that they, no, it wasn't her. They're looking for a new job, whatever. And the place that they applied to work at doesn't do sick and vacation time. Oh no, it wasn't my sister. It was Renee. Um, they don't do sick and vacation time. They do, you get 20 days off a year period and you can use them for whatever you want. Sick time, vacation time, personal days. You can use them as days to like take off for your kids, whatever it is. And you actually don't even have to take the whole day. So it's like 20 days worth of hours and you can take half days. Like if your kids have, you know, sports games that interfere with your work schedule, whatever it is. And honestly, that is the way that all businesses should go because some people get sick more than other people. Some people don't and like take more vacations. Hi, that's me. Um, Because I love going on vacation, but like, you know, you should be able to use your time however you see fit. And like, there are going to be people who need more sick days to take care of their sick kids, whatever it is, you go back to school and you get really sick. Like, you that's just the way it should be. Nobody should ever be penalized in any job for taking time off, especially not people who are doing like hard manual labor. You know, I can bang out sick whenever I feel like it and no one's going to say anything to me. And my job like might be mentally stressful sometimes, but it's definitely not physically stressful ever. So I, I really can't understand why this is an issue for such a demanding and such an important job. But it also kind of goes with this may be an issue with airlines soon that Delta pilots voted to strike last month. Obviously, voting to strike doesn't mean you start striking the next day. And there's a whole legal process that has to play out with more negotiation and then a 30 day cooling off period. But it's very possible that Delta pilots could be striking you know, maybe come January. I'm not sure if my timeline is a little off because I don't totally understand what they have to do first. Um, but it's wild to me that we, the way that we treat, you know, our transportation workers in this country, whether it's railroad workers or airline workers or, you know, like bus employees, like in different cities, it's so crazy to me what is going on that like this simple demand for 
a more reliable schedule and sick days is like so difficult for people to wrap their heads around and the difficulty in which it even is to just unionize in the first place. Um, And it's so crazy to me having recently found out or rediscovered the fact that like we don't even pay people who work in transportation for all of the hours that they actually work. Um, Pilots and flight attendants and like on plane staff don't get paid until the doors close on the plane. Oh, yeah. Which is like. Just so wild to me. So not only do you have a super fucking long commute to work because you're going into an airport, so you have to get there and they're never like smack in the middle of a city. You have to go through TSA. You have to get there a little early to make sure you're actually there on time. And then, you know, you have to actually deal with customers, help them with their bags, tell them where they're sitting, like whatever it is. And you're literally not getting paid for any of that work in the U.S. is so crazy to me. I would never take a job where literally hours of my time are not being compensated. Yeah. I agree. And these are all jobs we need. Like we need these people to be doing these jobs. It's like treat them better. So it looks like currently they have an average of 15, the max of 25 uh paid vacations so some some of them have i guess 20 days they can do whatever with um like that company but uh i mean if you're gonna if i guess if you're gonna put it if you're gonna put it all into one thing they should just raise the amount is what i guess what you you would say to that I don't understand why like the base for everyone isn't 20 days off and like 20 days to do whatever you want with. Like that should be the base. I mean, that's what it is in most European countries. Like most of, most of the time in Europe, like businesses basically close down in August because everyone's taking their vacations before they go back to work. And my, actually my grandfather was a railroad employee. And after many years of working there, he got a month off each, you know, each year, but he was specifically like a Long Island Railroad employee and they usually have good contracts. And I say usually, but you know, it it just, it's like, it's just so crazy to me too, that like, it's different depending on where you are, you know, like, like a railroad employee in the same job as someone, you know, in New York versus like another state. Like if you're doing the same job, you're doing the same job doesn't matter if it's like New York versus Boston or New York versus Chicago. Yeah. So uh, an area that Biden also, in my opinion, has been uh, substandard, but has an opportunity to do better on um, is uh, sort of can be attributed to the election, um, you know, we talked about New York's uh, red shift in the red direction, even though, you know, Democrats still want to see wide and thank God Lee Zeldin's not going to be the governor. Um, the, probably the only state with worse election results for Democrats was Florida, which seems to, for the foreseeable future, be a lost uh, electoral cause for Democrats. Yeah. Now, <laughs> now, because of that, uh, Biden politically is more free to pursue 
the more pragmatic policies towards Cuba uh, and Venezuela, rather than catering to the uh, politically potent contingency uh, uh, constituencies of conservative Cuban Americans and Venezuelan Americans in South Florida, as administrations of both parties have been doing for decades. This uh, and an op-ed from Max Boot, who's a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. This was in Washington Post. Uh, he notes that Donald Trump rolled back Obama's attempts to normalize relations with Cuba uh, and tighten sanctions on Venezuela beginning in 2017. And then after a fraudulent election in Venezuela in 2018, the Trump administration recognized opposition leader Juan uh, Guaido uh, as president and tried to foment an uprising against the regime of Nicolas Maduro. Neither approach uh, has achieved U.S. foreign policy objectives, but they accomplished what Trump wanted as he received 70% of the Cuban-American votes in Florida in 2020. Biden waited until this May, uh, after more than a year in office, to relax some of the sanctions on Cuba, uh, but he has not re uh, returned to Obama's 2014 policy on normalizing relations and has maintained Trump's designation of Cuba as a state sponsor of terrorism, despite the consensus within the US intelligence committee that it's not actually sponsoring any terrorism. Um, and he's been even slower to dial back Trump's uh, failed approach to Venezuela. Experts expect that Biden is looking to do in Venezuela what Reagan did in Nicaragua with the Sandinistas, which is after the failed overthrow attempts they use sanctions leverage to achieve peace and international sanctions and international sanction elections. And in uh, the case of Nicaragua, Santanese has lost that. And uh, the Venezuelan government recently agreed in meetings with the opposition in Mexico City to engage in discussions about holding elections. So it could go in that direction. Um, I know that this is uh, good news to you, Jess, who would love to be able to go to Cuba more. I love going to Cuba. It is a fabulous country with great people and even better coffee. And, uh, well, and, and sanctions are really only hurting the people. You know? That's that's the biggest issue. Like, they, like these sanctions don't do anything to the government. Like I'm not trying to say that the governments in Cuba or Venezuela are perfect because there really is no such thing. And there's so many problematic things that they're doing, but there's also so many problematic things that the U.S. government is doing. So for us to stand on our own little pedestal that we've created and say that we know how to do it better is bullshit. These sanctions only hurt the people that are living there. They make it so difficult for the people in these countries and for the governments to procure just even common everyday things. The last time that I went to Cuba, one of the biggest um, issues that they were talking about was a plane crash that had happened there on like the Cuban national companies, you know, plane. And part of the reason they think that it happened is because it's almost impossible for them to get replacement parts for their planes because of the embargo. And even when they are able to, because there's, there's sanctions, like even preventing other countries from trading 
certain U.S. made products. And one of them is planes. And I think it's related to the fact that we don't want Cuba to build up a military. So other countries aren't allowed to sell them these things. But even when other countries are allowed to trade with them or sell stuff to them, it's like almost impossible for them to buy the things that they need because the Cuban government is not allowed to trade in the U.S. dollar. And the U.S. dollar is basically international currency for trade at this point. So all countries are trading in the U.S. dollar. Almost all countries are, but Cuba has to change their money into some other kind of money and trade with that, making it exceptionally difficult for other countries to want to engage with them, but also just making it more expensive. And this doesn't like, again, this doesn't hurt the government, like the government, the diplomats, like the heads of state, they're always going to have enough food, somewhere to sleep, clothes, like things that they enjoy. Like you're only hurting the people who actually live there. And this is why, you know, so many people either want to one, leave Cuba so that they can have an easier life or just dislike, you know, the U.S., Um, you know, I've been there twice, once for like a little over a week and once for two weeks. Um, and it's really, it's like, it's just sad to see like how much and how ingenious, you know, people there have become to be able to continue to do the things that you need to do in life without access to the resources, um, that are available to other countries because the U.S. government still hates them from like 70 years ago. Yeah, it's just a shame that that politics has been the reason that uh, Biden's Cuba policy especially has been so terrible. Um, Glad that there's the political excuse to not worry about it anymore, but it's just really unfortunate that It's really unfortunate because of the damage that we've done from all the years of this happening, you know, and I remember when I was a kid, I was always fascinated with Cuba because if you tell me I can't do something, like I want to do it. So always hearing that you're not allowed to go to Cuba always made me want to go to Cuba, but like all this stuff. Same here. That's so crazy. (laughs) Same here. I still want to go. That's my dream to visit. Uh, Well, one day we got to, we got to do it. Take me with you. We got to record from Cuba. That would be awesome. (laughs) No, we really, I mean, honestly, we really shouldn't. The way that I went in the past was actually through like a social work organization. It was this way. I have to reach out to her. I should really email um, the woman who organized this because she organized it for years. But I don't know if Cuba is letting in foreigners right now because of COVID. I know that they kept like a block on international travel a lot longer than other places. And I don't know if they've lifted it yet. Um, I should really look into it, but I would love to, if she's not organizing it, I would love to organize a group to go down there because you can still like legally go down there on an educational trip from like the U S perspective. Cuba doesn't give a fuck. They'll just let you in. Um, But I remember when I, I can't remember if I was in high school or college, but my 12th grade government teacher in high school was actually Cuban. Her family left um, after the revolution in 59 and she ended up teaching American government to high school kids. Um, but it was a high school or a college teacher I had that went on an organized educational trip once in the nineties. And she said that when she got down there, she went through immigration and everything was fine. And they like pulled out the stamp when she walked up and then they put it away because they saw her U.S. passport. And this is before 
there were RFID chips and passports and all that stuff. And she was like, oh, no, no, no. Like, I'm allowed to be here. Like, you can stamp it. And I was so excited to get my Cuban stamps and my passport when I went. But I remember all the things they said about, you know, like just all the terrible things that they would say. Like, if you're, you know, Cuban, like you can't speak against the government and like everyone's so repressed and blah, 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 blah. And like, on a whole, that's not any more true than it is anywhere else. Like, it's so interesting to like talk to people from there to, you know, get their opinions on things. And the only thing that I universally heard from everyone, like you would get different opinions, every person you asked, but the only thing that everyone was really consistent on is they're like, we don't, you know, we hate the U.S. government and we don't hate U.S. people. Like U.S. people are safe here. And to be honest with you, like I never, like never felt like I wasn't. Obviously this is coming from the perspective of like a young white woman. So that's like important contacts, but like never felt like I was like in danger, but like all the shit that I heard when I was a kid. Um, something, yeah, uh, something going on closer to home and, uh, well, literally where I live now, um, that if it happened in Cuba would be maybe given by some on the, in, um, in the like foreign policy establishment or on the right, even in the center, uh, you know, a reason to have sanctions on if it happened in Cuba, given as a reason to get what I'm saying, this is not being in New York city. Um, there's an, you know, an announcement by the mayor that uh, they're going to increase involuntary hospitalization um, for people who they are considered to be a danger to themselves, even if they pose no risk to anyone else. Uh, here's a quote from Mayor Adams. The common misunderstanding persists that we cannot provide involuntary assistance unless the person is violent. Going forward, We'll make every effort to assist those who are suffering from mental illness. Um, I mean, that's that's a very uh, euphemized version of what's actually happening, especially because this is the police that are leading this initiative. Um, here's a quote from the article, which is ridiculous. Uh, this is a New York Times article. Quote, left-leaning advocates and officials who dominate New York politics say that deploying the police as auxiliary social workers may do more harm than good. Like, that, just the framing of that statement, it's like, oh, these, like, left-leaning advocates and these, these, these people who dominate politics say, you know, that it may do more harm than good. Like, come on. Um, but that's sort of, that's a little, you know, sort of beside the point. Um, so existing state laws allow both the police and medical workers to authorize involuntary hospitalization of people whose behavior poses a threat of, quote, serious harm to themselves or others. The effort will also involve an increase in use of Kendra's law, which lets courts mandate outpatient treatment for those who are danger to themselves or others and was expanded by Albany lawmakers in April. Frequently, homeless people with severe mental illness are brought two hospitals only to be discharged a few days later when their conditions improve slightly. Mr. Adams said the city would direct hospitals to keep those patients until they're stable and discharge them only when there's a workable plan in place to connect them to ongoing care. Uh, hospitals often cite a shortage of psychiatric beds as the reason for discharging patients. 
but the mayor said the city would make sure there were enough beds for people who were removed from the street. He noted that Governor Kathy Hochul had agreed to add 50 new psychiatric beds. Um, he said they're going to find a bed for everyone. The city would also like the state to require hospitals to coordinate on discharge planning with providers in the community. That's good. Uh, and to consider someone's history, not just their current state in making admissions decisions, sure. Um, to let social workers and other non-doctors evaluate patients for Kendra's law orders, I guess better than cops, um, and to broaden the standard for involuntary hospitalization. Um, it's a you know complicated issue. This, there's, it's hard to come up with perfect solutions, but I don't think any of the right solution involves police officers uh, deciding when to hospitalize people, that's for sure. I agree. I, I, I definitely don't agree with um, police officers making the decision to hospitalize anyone because they're not trained on mental illness. So that's why you have a chaotic um, situation when they do um, address, you know, a mental illness person. And it just, yeah, it just never works out. I won't say it never works out, but oftentimes it doesn't work out well at all. Yeah, it's not just the lack of training, which is really important. Obviously, police officers, their primary training is not in mental health at all. But it's the fact that you're showing up with a gun and a police uniform, which triggers a lot of people. I mean, yeah. gun alone is enough of a reason, but the uniform is just a, a visual reminder that like this is an authority figure in front of you telling you like you need to get off the street and go to a hospital. Like, are you kidding? Yeah. That's ridiculous. Um, obviously, you know, you should go to the you know, get, get your solutions from, you know, the people, the affected communities, what they want to see, the people that work with the affected communities, not, you know, not police uh, conventional wisdom that is clearly, you know, backed by, uh, you know, even, you know, like the, you know, traditional media and uh, conventional narratives. Um, this is sort of another example of uh, sort of the reactionary nature of uh, the Adams administration, which um, we got thanks to ranked choice voting, which I'm normally in favor of, but uh, did not work out in terms of the New York mayor race. Um, and he, this after, you know, clearing out homeless encampments and things like that. Um, and the report, you know, the pieces of uh, corruption that have been reported on in the administration, just, just everything. Um, an, an article uh, came out, it was uh, basically an op-ed in Teen Vogue by Katie Duffy, who is uh, the chief medical officer at the Los Angeles LGBT Center. Um, more pushback against uh, traditional media and conventional narratives um you know with respect to a marginalized population um so it, it the, her op-ed centered on a recent new york times piece that came out during transgender awareness week and focused on the potential risks of puberty blocker uh, called luprolide and neglected the most compelling reason that it's used which is that it saves lives um trans youth who are on the precipice of puberty, experience high rates of depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation, and uh, 
and attempts uh, of, of suicide as they grapple with their internal relationship with gender while realizing that the world has little regard for people of their experience. Pu uh, puberty blockers are associated with decreased rates of adverse mental health outcomes in young people, in multiple studies. Um, furthermore, access to gender affirming care in adolescents decreases morbidity and mortality risk in adulthood. Even a delay of six months has been found to lead to a threefold increase in depressive symptoms and suicidality when compared to a baseline. Of those 13 to 17 who are unable to access these medications, nearly 30% have attempted suicide, according to a study published in the Journal of Adolescent Health. The Times article fo focused on the fact that international standards of gender-affirming care are re uh, recommendations and not requirements to make them seem you know, less vital. Um, but doctors who are providing gender-affirming services rely uh, on standards set by the World Professional Association of Transgender Health, which provides a list of criteria that a young person must meet before they can be considered for hormone blockage or replacement. They also are recommended intensive training before a medical provider can prescribe blockers and call for a multidisciplinary approach in evaluating a young person and deciding if hormone blockers are the right decision. Um, they also talk about how there's no central tracking of Luprolide prescriptions, but FDA approved medications usually don't require such a database, even when they have the medications have a risk of serious side effects. The main side effect uh, for Luprolide, I believe, is a decrease in bone density, um, which you know the, these practitioners take into account. You know, but you know the risk of you know a, a decrease in bone density versus the risk of suicide. You know, it's something that you know needs to be dealt with seriously, um, taking into consideration you know all the factors. Um, at this moment, there are uh, at least 20 states that are considering bans regarding the provision of uh, medical necessity, um, well, you know, regarding the provisions of medically necessary life-saving gender-affirming care for trans youth. And it's just, you know, we've talked about it before. It's, you know, just, it's bullying, it's picking on a marginalized population, um, you know, for all the various reasons that, you know, politicians uh, victimize people, you know, to, you could say it's, it's to distract from their unpopular agenda of cutting taxes for corporations and, and uh, cutting, you know, social security and Medicare, um, you know, or just that they're assholes or, you know, that they want to control uh, others and have themselves not be controlled, you know, that they're, you know, it, it makes them uncomfortable, whatever it is. You know, it's, it's, it's happening um, and it's, it's vile. Pretty much everything that makes somebody's life hell. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. And, and I believe that if you stop taking puberty blockers, you know, if you decide, you know, say a, a kid decides to, you know, not, uh, you know, undergo this care and, and they're okay with, you know, the, you know, the gender assigned at birth or, or whatever, you know, it's reversible also, I think. Um, I mean, that's, that's really the crux of this to me is that 
you're picking on a group of people and you really like, if you are a cis woman out there, you really have to think about this as like a time pre being able to get birth control whenever you wanted to, like, that was an issue that you had with your body. You did not want to become pregnant. You wanted birth control and you were not allowed to have it because some generic old white dude in government told you, you weren't allowed to have it or in your church, whatever you want to, you know, however you want to look at it. Like you can take birth control for years and years and years and years. And then you come off of it. Typically it takes a couple of months for your body to re-regulate and then you can get pregnant. Like if you are a person who is currently uncomfortable in the body that you have, and you want to take puberty blockers or hormone blockers, or you want to take a, you know, hormone that is not naturally producing in your own body, you can go on it. And if you don't like it, and it may be the side effects you don't like, it may be what it's actually doing to your body that you decide, no, I don't want to do this. You come off of it and it will probably take a few months and your body will re-regulate itself. The issue with this is one, you're picking on, you know, a group of people that clearly gets picked on enough Two, people have been doing this for years and years and years, and you just didn't know and didn't care. And you should go back to not knowing and not caring. Um, you know, and the other problem is, is that if, this becomes something that is illegal if they make it illegal in these states for people to have access to hormones and birth control what's going to end up happening is that people are going to buy it on the you know underground market which is dangerous if you want to go on any kind of hormone puberty blocker whatever no matter who you are you should at least attempt to see a doctor we all have different you know medical conditions reactions maybe other medication we're on that, you know, we may, might stop working or could screw with the hormones. Everyone should see a doctor before they do this and make sure that they are getting the right kind of medication for in the right dosage for their own particular needs. Um, and if people are getting this on the black market, they're not going to see a doctor. They're not going to know what they should actually be taking. And then you don't know where this medication came from. Is it authentic? Is there something mixed in it that you shouldn't be taking? Like, it's so dangerous to do this. People are going to get this medication or they're going to at least attempt to get this medication one way or another. Um, and they should be able to do it in the safest and would also be the most cost-effective way um, of going and seeing some kind of medical professional to make sure they're not hurting themselves by accident. Yeah, and it's just the fact that the fact that all this the you know the anti-trans you know, rhetoric centers around you know demonizing this medical care it's just ridiculous. Yeah, and um, I mean, well, like I guess a, a hopeful side of it is you know there's a reason why you know the rhetoric needs to be lies is that if you know most people heard the actual truth you know, they wouldn't go along with, you know, the, the anti-trans folks. And, you know, it's like that on a ton of issues that, you know, that right-wing, you know, white supremacists, reactionaries, whatever it is, lie about stuff because the truth wouldn't, would make people, you know, drive people away from them. Um, yeah, so. I mean, I, I just wish that everyone who didn't know about this a couple of years ago would just forget about it now because this has been happening for a long time <laughs> unless you were the person seeking out medical care it's none of your fucking business get off your high horse and let it be yeah let people get the medical care that they want and need pretty simple and i think you know a lot of like a large majority of people 
would, you know, even a supermajority of people would agree with that. Um, they just don't think that having anti-trans views conflicts with that. They don't realize it or they're, they're just denying it. Well, it's exactly what we were talking about before. Like if this was a cis woman who decided that she didn't want to get pregnant, you know, she would demand access to birth control. If this is a, you know, transgender person, they feel like, oh, it's fine for me to interfere with their access to medical care, just because this isn't a situation that you are currently living or someone you love is currently living doesn't mean that you get to dictate it. You know, how many people end up, you know, realizing the error of their ways when their kids come out, you know, as, as, you know, LGBTQ, you know, as trans and whatever, you know, how many people who are, you know, so fucking racist, like end up having, you know, a black or Hispanic, you know, grandchild, niece or nephew and realize how idiotic they were being like, just realize you were being idiotic now and end it. Like, that's it. It's so simple. And there are also the people who don't realize that they're idiots and shun their kids and grandkids and family. And that's not okay either. In my own words, uh, let me live. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, let me live, okay? And we will let our audience live after we've gone on for a particularly <laughs> long episode. We're going to save a couple topics for next week. And uh, we'll, we'll see everybody then. Um, thank you as always to Iridian Falcone for inspiring the podcast and our logo, uh, and to the Grammy award-winning Vinny Alfano of Anonymous Hair Salon in Soho for the theme song. See you next week. Bye.